welcome to PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on their experiences with this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. Ideally, I would also like to provide more information for teachers and schools on how to best provide accommodations to aid PDA children to learn at their best. While I am not neurodivergent myself, Two of my children are, and the youngest was diagnosed with PDA in the summer of 2020. I do not seek to speak for neurodivergent people, but hope to speak with them as I work toward a better understanding. Because of that, and because I choose to listen to the neurodivergent community, I will be using terms like PDA or autistic person, etc. It is clear among the neurodivergent community that they want people to stop treating neurodivergence as an accessory. For example, person with autism instead of autistic person. Their neurodivergence is part of them. It's not something they carry about. It's not an accessory. Think of it like when you describe someone. You don't say she is a person with a pleasant demeanor. You say she's a pleasant person. You don't say he's a person who happens to write with their left hand. You say he's a left-handed person, right? You get my point. The autism, PDA, ADHD, etc. It's part of who they are. It's not ancillary. So please understand that and avoid leaving me comments like you should use person-first vocabulary. If that's what the neurodivergent community wanted, they would say so. But overwhelmingly what I've seen is they are saying that it's the neurotypical community who's putting that message out and they're asking us to stop. I choose to listen. That being said, If I do say something offensive to the people in the community, please know that it is not coming from an intentionally ableist perspective. I am still learning, so please leave constructive criticism for me to help me learn and to better support you here. So the first important topic is the condition of PDA itself. That's the point of the podcast, right? According to the PDA Society, Pathological Demand Avoidance is an anxiety-driven need for control, or that was one of the definitions at one point. People with this condition are driven to avoid everyday demands and expectations to an extreme extent, even things they want to do. So let's unpack that. The biggest issue I've seen when talking about this is that people get hung up on the word control. In the case of my seven-year-old son, who is the one with PDA, when I explain to teachers or others about his condition, they immediately assume that he is in control at home and politely explain that they are in control of their classroom, not the students. This is a major problem with understanding. He is not a power-hungry megalomaniac. He is a seven-year-old little boy who is doing his best and who is not always in control of his actions. One of the best explanations of this interaction can be found in the absolutely brilliant book, The PDA Paradox, by Harry Thompson. Harry himself is a PDAer, and this book is like a bit of a memoir of his early life. He says that PDA is like having an inner Loki that tells you to do things you probably know you shouldn't. 
My own son has told me on occasion that his brain will tell him to do one thing and his body says something else, but he can't stop it. He's also told me that his brain tells him to do things that aren't nice, but again, he can't stop it. So if it isn't about power, what is it? The anxiety-driven need also has to do with feeling safe. Not all PDAers experience the same things, nor do all autistic people exhibit the same symptoms. It's a spectrum for a reason, and not a linear spectrum, right? More like a circle. But that's a topic for another episode. In my experience, and that of a few other people I've spoken to, the anxiety associated with PDA can stem from worry of losing control of a situation, or of themselves in a situation, leading to unsafe conditions. Let me give you an example. Say you ask a kid to complete a worksheet. It's a simple enough request, right? Inside the mind of a PDA or though, the wheels begin to turn. What if I can't remember the answers? Then the teacher will be upset with me and they may not like me anymore and they may yell at me. Yelling scares me. Then what if the other children laugh at me and make fun of me for being stupid? That'll make me feel scared and embarrassed and I'll start crying and want to run from the room. Running from the room is against the rules and then I get in trouble. So inside their mind, that worksheet is now a source of danger that could lead to fear, crying, and getting in trouble. So why on earth would they want to do it? If you knew that doing something would put you in danger, would you run straight toward it? Probably not. Also, keep in mind that many PDA individuals also have some degree of autism. Autism involves very black and white thinking at times. So when they create that line from worksheet to danger, it isn't always that easy to deviate from it or break out from it. The key word to focus on in the description of a PDA is anxiety. That's the focus. If you can help with the anxiety, then that can minimize some of the meltdowns. The other thing to realize is this condition is very nebulous. There are no hard and fast rules. You have to be willing to compromise and make concessions for this person who really is doing the best they can. You try fighting a battle inside your head every day and see how pleasant you are on the outside. I know that every day when my little guy gets home that it's going to be very up and down. He works so hard to maintain his behavior all day at school, but he can't always do it. When he gets home, the place where he knows he can let go and be himself, he can come unraveled. I do my best not to get frustrated or take it personally, but I'm human and I do falter. I mean, this kid has been masking, or trying to, all day, and now he's exhausted. How do you feel when you're exhausted and someone's doing something that bothers you? How pleasant are you? How quick do you snap? This is what's going on. The other thing to note is that I do still have expectations for my son, and there are things that I need him to do. However, because I know PDA does not play well with demands, I've had to learn to adjust my approach. I try not to make outward demands. I'll let him know that I've laid his clothes out instead of telling him to get dressed. I'll challenge him to a race to see who can get done picking up faster. We still reach the same conclusion, and he's still completing the necessary tasks, but I've worked it up so it doesn't seem like a list of demands. I think this is the thing that most educators struggle with. They have a tight schedule and need to get things done in a certain way in a certain time. So to tell them they have to adjust their approach for one child can cause them to react with exasperation. And please don't get me wrong. I am not trying to discredit teachers in any way. 
as an educator myself, I know that it is an immensely stressful profession that is undervalued in society. Personally, I think there need to be changes at higher levels, but that's a different podcast entirely. Perhaps the better description is the other one provided by the PDA Society. That is the one that explains PDA as involving the avoidance of everyday demands and the use of social strategies as a part of the avoidance. So what do social strategies mean? This is a varied group of avoidance strategies like distraction, right? You ask someone to do something and they're like, oh, that's, that's a really pretty shirt, is that new? Or look, look at that over there, right? Changing the subject. Procrastination is another one giving excuses, why you can't complete something, or why you can't meet a demand, or feigning injury. All of these are social strategies. So what does PDA feel like for the pda -er? The PDA Society asked some of their patients to describe it, and here are some of their responses. I like to describe the experience of being under a demand as similar to having claustrophobia. The anxiety keeps rising steadily until it becomes a non-negotiable, panic-driven need to flee from the source of a demand. It's like you're gaming, and you have the main controller, and then sometimes someone yanks the controller away from you, and you lose control and feel panicky. Demand avoidance makes it sound like I'm avoiding things on purpose, but I literally have no choice in it whatsoever. So I prefer to call it demand anxiety. I feel most anxious when I'm pressed to do something I feel I can't do. But when people around me don't understand what I mean when I say I can't do that. I know how to do things, and I can do them sometimes. But most of the time I just can't. It starts with avoidance. But if someone insists, I'll go straight to panic. I go from being sort of okay to crashing down a hill. It's the most frustrating thing to have the functional capacity to understand what's happening, but the functional ability just isn't there. It's the worst form of self-sabotage. The word can't in that last description is huge. It's something I explain to people all the time. When my son says he can't, it's very different from won't, and you can tell the difference. Like the comments above, you can look in his eyes and see the panic. You can see his body go rigid and practically feel the anxiety coming off of him in waves. He may have the functional capacity to do something, but he has lost the functional ability. That is the time to de-escalate. If you can come back to it later, do. If you can give that person a moment to leave the area and calm down, do. If you continue to push someone against their will, you will experience a meltdown and your goal won't be met anyhow. So what's the point? The last thing I'm going to talk about are demands, since these are kind of the key factor causing the issue. So what are they and how can they be restructured or eliminated? Demands can be a variety of things. There are direct requests like brush your teeth, put on your shoes, get dressed. They can also be questions. Do you want something to drink? And I have personally seen the choice of food and drink cause a spike in anxiety. In that case, I just left the topic and waited for him to come around. You also have indirect demands, and this one can get kind of tricky. Praise is actually an indirect demand. It can cause someone to feel like since they did so well this time, 
they'll be expected to be just as good, if not better, next time, which can start an anxiety spike. This may not happen when the praise is given, but later on, when the task is attempted a second time. It doesn't mean don't give praise. It just means that you should understand that if someone is upset whenever they try to come back, that's probably the reason for it. They're remembering that praise and they're concerned that they won't meet that expectation for you again, right? Star charts and reward charts are heinous for PDA children. I tried this with my son before his diagnosis because it was suggested at the time that he was ODD. ODD is a condition driven by a need for power, right? And star charts give you the power of gaining a reward. But it backfired like nothing I have ever seen. He was so torn up whenever he was unable to get the star because he acted out. Unwillingly, mind you, but still. And he would go into these horrible hate spirals towards himself. And they were heartbreaking to watch. So I tossed the chart and we didn't go back. Uncertainty is a major indirect demand, and this one ties in with the autism as well. Uncertainty is this absolute absence of any kind of control or comfort in knowing what's coming and whether or not that is safe. Demands within demands are a big ball of anxiety. Say you're going out to eat, right? There's the demand of going, in general. But there's also the demand of sitting at the table for the whole meal, deciding what you want to eat. Maintaining good table manners, engaging in conversation with people around you, not interrupting them, not cutting them off. There's a list of things that go along with meeting just one demand, right? Internal demands are impossible for you to avoid. That's something that's going on inside the mind of a pda right? These are the demands they put on themselves. These are the things that they know they have to do, like going to the bathroom, eating, drinking, even things they might want to do, like watching TV, going to the park, having a snack. There's no way to prevent these altogether because they're happening inside the person. All you can do here is try to be a source of calm and help if they want you to, and that if they want you to is an important thing to remember too. Sometimes when a pda is having a meltdown and they run, make sure they're going to a safe place, make sure they're not hurting themselves, yes, but at that point in time, if they don't want you there, don't push to stay there. Don't push to fix the situation. Don't, you know, I have been guilty of this in the past. With my son, I would, you know, he would run off into his room and I would go in there, just talk to me, tell me what's going on. I can, you know, let me help you get through this. He didn't want to deal with it right then. He was in too high of a um, anxious state. He needed me to leave him alone. By pushing him, that was escalating him and that was making it worse. So reach out to someone. If they run off, make sure they're okay. Make sure they're safe. Ask if they want your help. But if they say no, walk away. They'll come to you later or you can go back in after they seem to have quietened down and check on them again. But don't push. That will get you nowhere. It's also important to note that not all demands are going to be avoided by a PDA, right? There are times when demands can be met without issue or concern. I can say, hey, we're getting ready to leave. Go ahead and put your shoes on and boom, he'll put his shoes on. We'll be out the door. But there are other times when it can cause a major fight 
right? He can resist it. The thing is, PDA, like I said, it's a very nebulous condition. And you must remember that when a person is, you know, like, when they do resist, PDA demand avoidance isn't a choice. They are not just trying to be difficult or grab for power. They are literally unable to meet your demand in that moment. PDA itself is, it's still in its early stages of research. It was first recognized by Dr. Elizabeth Newson back in the mid-1980s. Because of its ongoing research, it's not currently recognized in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual, and so it doesn't qualify for certain accommodations. It's a tragic and unfortunate situation that needs to be remedied, and that's one of the goals I have in increasing awareness. Many of the traditional approaches for autism are inherently incompatible with PDAers. Yes, they're often autistic as well, but they're in a different part of the spectrum. Therefore, trying to use the wrong tools is just going to end in disaster. A wooden shield might work fine against an iguana swinging its tail at you, but it's garbage against a dragon breathing fire. Even though they're both reptiles, you need different tools. It's kind of a really broad generalization, but you get my point. Another thing to remember is that this is a person fighting for existence and acceptance in a world built by neurotypical people. Just because they're different in their actions or behaviors doesn't make them any less valid of an individual. And it doesn't make them weird or require you to point out that you think they're odd or misbehaving or to comment on that behavior or criticize the parent for not being stern enough with their child. Because this can only serve to worsen the situation by raising anxiety levels and causing damage to the person. Trust me. Let me tell you the story of my son's journey. When my son was in preschool, I started to notice that he was struggling a bit. He would gravitate towards teachers or play by himself, but only sometimes engaged with other kids. He would have days where he could not be persuaded to do what the rest of the class was doing. Change was also becoming increasingly difficult for him, as was controlling emotion. In my ignorance at the time, I would say, if it wasn't for the fact that he'll look you in the eye and hug you, I'd think the kid was autistic. Little did I know that autism has a variety of symptoms and not everyone exhibits the same ones. It was my lack of awareness and my ignorance about the condition that led me to make uninformed assertions, and I know better now. When he started kindergarten, we knew it was going to be a struggle. He did not react well to transitions, and he was having more and more trouble regulating emotions. At that point, he had a diagnosis of ADHD, which was completely expected, but not much else. Luckily, the teacher he was assigned to knew the family. She'd gone to school with little man's father, and she'd also taught the oldest kiddo. So she knew that his reactions to certain situations, his behaviors, his mannerisms, that they weren't a result of poor parenting, which is unfortunately all too often an assumption made by people on the outside. They feel like if the parents were more authoritative and strict, then the child would behave, right? Let me be clear. No amount of criticism, spanking, or terrorizing a PDA child will make them behave. You cannot scare them into submission. It will only drive them the other direction. 
that year was hard. He spun out as the year went on. His dad was an authoritative type of parent. And as I said, that doesn't work very well. Now, I'm not criticizing his dad or saying that he's a bad person. He was using the same parenting styles he had used on the other kids. It's just that we didn't know the condition he had, so we did not know the problems that was creating, right? So he spun out more as the year went on, and ADHD just did not seem to be the whole picture. I voiced my concern to his pediatrician, and she agreed with me. And she put in a referral to take him for a psychological evaluation at a children's hospital. We met with the team, they did standard intake, but there was no evaluation. The office was like two hours away for us, so we had to pull him out of school and drive him out there each time we had an appointment. And despite my urging that there was something else and the urging of his pediatrician, uh, they refused to test for anything, and they insisted it was just ADHD, and he was just six years old. And I'm not trying to say I know more than the doctors or that, you know, Google University has made me more knowledgeable. I'm not. I am trying to say I was the one with him most of the time. I knew in my gut there was something else going on. I could see that there was some kind of struggle. And then came the scary days. At the ripe age of five, my darling boy looked me in the middle of a meltdown, he looked me in the eyes and said he should just kill himself or we should kill him so that we could have a better kid. I was stunned. There's literally no other way to say it. I still can't find the words to explain how I felt in that moment. He was five and suicidal. He understood what it meant too because he told his counselor that he should walk out in front of a car in the parking lot at school, but then he wouldn't be able to see his family anymore. Can you imagine the horror of wanting to end your life at such a young age because what you're fighting with feels like a losing battle? At that point, I doubled down my efforts. His pediatrician sent over another request for a psychological evaluation, and again, the doctors at the center said they did not know what tests we were looking for, but they had done what they needed to do. We didn't go back after that. Then came the moment the lights went on. Every parent of a PDA child or any PDAer, when you ask them, will tell you the moment they heard about the condition, it was like the lights went on and you realize that that was it. For me, that moment came one day while I was scrolling through Instagram of all places in a particularly despondent mood. I came across a post by Kim Rhodes. She was the amazing Sheriff Jody Mills on Supernatural and also the mom on The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Great roles, but it's Kim Rhodes who's the person I feel is the greatest of all. She helped me save my son's life. And I will be eternally grateful for her t to her until the day that I die. She posted about her daughter's diagnosis of PDA, which was a very transparent and vulnerable thing to do. As I read it, the lights went on. I'm a historian by trade. So I took to the path of research. I digested everything I could from the PDA Society, read the medical journal articles, and with each new thing I read, it seemed like this was it. And I was fully ready to fly to the UK if I had to in order to get him evaluated. That's where the PDA Society is based. Then I found PDA North America and Dr. Gould. And I was ready to fly to Chicago then. But Dr. Gould was amazing 
she responded to my desperate email and gave me the information for a psychologist in Greenville, Texas, Dr. Crawford, who was trained in PDA evaluation. When I explained everything to Dr. Crawford, she said that he needed to be evaluated for autism and she would also do the PDA evaluation. She said she agreed with me that there was something more than ADHD going on with him. She did explain, however, that because he was six at that time, he had made his sixth birthday, that it was sometimes hard to identify signposts when they're so young, but we would try. He turned six right before he went in for that appointment. So we drove six hours, did the evaluation, and after two weeks, Dr. Crawford phoned and said he had both autism and PDA, as well as generalized anxiety disorder and, of course, the ADHD, which we already knew. Now, here's the thing. That diagnosis was not a magic fix. It did not change anything about him. He did not suddenly stop having struggles and meltdowns because we had letters and a medical diagnosis to attach to his reactions. That's not what a diagnosis does. A diagnosis is a torch in a dark cave. Before that, he was in this dark cave and under attack from an unseen force. We never knew why, from where, or when it was going to attack, nor did we know how to fight it. The diagnosis handed us a torch. Now we could see what it was he was fighting, and the diagnosis told us what tools we needed to fight correctly and to help him level the playing field against his opponent because it is very much a battle for him. He fights every day and you can see it on his little face and in his eyes. He fights so much and so hard for such a little guy. The other thing that a diagnosis does is it gives you a means to get accommodations in learning that can help your child or yourself succeed. It forces the neurotypical world to accept and support the neurodivergent person. as long as the condition's recognized, right? Which is where PDA has a problem. It's been researched and tested and written about by the medical community for nearly four decades now. But in terms of medical research, that's still relative infancy. It's recognized by many medical professionals as a separate diagnosis from autism, but because it's not listed in the DSM-5, you can't really get those accommodations. So the struggle now is getting it listed in the next diagnostic manual or having it added. That will open so many doors for the children battling this in school, for adults fighting it in college and in the workplace. This will give them a means to help level that playing field. It will help to provide others with the knowledge of how to handle their reactions, right? How do we, as neurotypical individuals, accept the, you know, how do we have that acceptance of the reactions and the way that neurodivergent people act? That's what having this more recognized, more aware, more accepted, more included in this diagnostic manual, that's what that will do. It will be a huge step forward. So I hope this has been an informative introduction into PDA. There are so many more topics that I plan to cover in the coming episodes, and I really hope to get the voices of some PDAers, um, some medical professionals, and even some you know families to get other perspectives on 
how they came about learning about PDA and what their experiences were like. So the podcast will be bi-weekly, as I mentioned, and I'll be posting information on any books, websites, or articles that I mentioned in the websites in the description of each, as well as links to useful resources. Um, so for this one, I will have the list, uh, the listing for um, Harry Thompson's book, for the link to the PDA Society, and a few other things. Um, for now, though, this is your Perpetually Determined Advocate signing off. And remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Thank you.